This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the topic for today is Dharma talk and also the afternoon open discussion is what I'm calling Beyond Secularism, Revisioning Religious Spiritual Life for the Challenges of the 21st Century. I've made some notes. Um, there's, a, there's a lot I wanted to try and cover, and I probably won't be able to cover everything. And uh, but we'll have. Um, I'll try and get the main themes across. So I've chosen this topic for today <clears throat> to celebrate Ozen becoming registered as a charity under the category of a religious organisation with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. I feel this is an important milestone in the evolution of our Zen and provides us with the ongoing opportunity to explore what it means to us on both personal and organizational level or Sangha level, what it means to us to identify with Zen Buddhism as a religious practice. This has been an evolving conversation uh, within our Zen during the course of this year. A few months earlier, we had Barry speak to us on the topic of why I am a Buddhist. Also this year, we have been running our inaugural precepts study group. And the significant number of the participants in that group um, will be participating in a ceremony known as Jukai, literally receiving the precepts which functions traditionally as a form of initiation into following the Bodhisattva path in traditional Zen Buddhism. So today I'm going to share with you some tentative beginnings on how to revision what it means for me and for us Zen to live a religious life in the 21st century in our time and place. In sharing this with you in my Dharma talk, I will also be inviting you to share your own views on this topic during the time I have set aside in the afternoon. If you can't make it this afternoon, it's always fine to share via email if you have any reflections on this topic. We need to tease out what it means to us on both a personal and Sangha level to be identified as religious. I thought it was therefore a good time to contemplate the meaning of living a religious life from a Zen perspective. However, some of you may already be feeling uncomfortable with the thought of belonging to a Sangha that openly identifies as a religious organization. Some of you may have embraced spirituality or Buddhism as an alternative to religion. Some of you may have experienced religion as a dogmatic, conservative, or at worst, deeply traumatizing experience. So before you decide to get up and leave now, I hope by staying and listening to what I have to sketch or do a preliminary sketch of, I hope I, I can inspire you to take a different view as to what a religious life may mean to you and to our Sangha. So <clears throat> this um, topic I've divided up into two parts. So the first part I'll talk about in the Dharma talk, it will briefly touch on the evolution of religion before moving into a discussion about the evolution of modern Buddhism in the West. 
in the context of our scientific and secular culture. There has been basically three ways in which Buddhism has adapted to this new culture in the West. Firstly, there has been the attempt to maintain the various Buddhist traditions as religious practices while adjusting for Western culture. So for example, the influence of feminism and how that shaped Buddhism in the West, including religious Buddhism. This particular movement has included the establishment of monasteries in the West, the ordination of priests, and also the growing trend towards lay religious practice. Secondly, there has been the establishment of what is often referred to as secular Buddhism. Stephen Batchelor is probably one of the best well-known proponents and teachers in that particular project called Secular Buddhism, with Batchelor claiming that Secular Buddhism is faithful to the original teachings of the historical Buddha. Thirdly, there has been the decontextualization and secularization of Buddhist practices in the form of the secular mindfulness movement, which most of you or all of you will be aware of. The way in which secular mindfulness has quite saturated um, counseling and psychotherapy, as well as um, corporate organizations. So in regards to my vision I want to share with you today, I'm going to be building on how we can actually extend this notion of a religious life into the 21st century. But before I do that, um, I'm going to be discussing the secular Buddhist idea, which although is very well presented by Stephen Batchelor, I think errs by identifying religion exclusively with the supernatural, while at the same time attempting to maintain a religious sensibility, which Batchelor refers to as the everyday sublime. I will then summarize the critique of secular mindfulness developed by um, a chapter in this book called What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't, a chapter by Majid and Mark Poirier um, that contrasts the no-gain spirituality of Zazen with the four-gain spirituality of secular mindfulness. Mark was a teacher in the Ordinary Mind School who passed away a few years ago, so I should say the late Mark Poirier. I will finish with a brief discussion about the place of faith in Zen Buddhism and just a listing of some of the challenges or some of the existential challenges we face in the 21st century. And in conclusion, I will argue that in, in order to meet these challenges, not only do we need to continue to facilitate the growth of religious Buddhism in the West, but we also need to move beyond secularism and revision a new religious paradigm, one that can engage in ecumenical dialogue with traditional theistic religions, such as Christianity, and the large group of non-affiliated spiritual teachers and practitioners that have felt alienated from religion as traditionally practiced. If we are going to have any hope of responding to the global existential challenges that we are facing in the 21st century, so I think it is important to enter into um, this sense of interfaith dialogue, um, given the fact that, for example, you know, previous prime ministers of Australia, uh, such as Tony Abbott and uh, Malcolm Turnbull, and the president of the United States, Joe Biden, are actually practicing Catholics. <clears throat> And uh, 
this afternoon I'll be just mentioning this um, a recent um, message um, from the uh, what's called a joint message for the protection of creation that was issued by the um, the Catholic Anglican and um, and, and the uh, the 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 um, Eastern Eastern Church um, in, in of Christianity a joint statement on climate change um, which uses very interesting language in terms of stewardship which I think we'll, we'll find interesting so you know if if we're going to have any hope of Tackling these kinds of issues, I think we need to engage in dialogue with other other religious faiths as well. And in the second part of today's discussion, we'll we'll look at that possible new vision of a religious life, a vision that I'm calling post-instrumentalist religion or a post-salvation religion, a religion that speaks to the concerns we are facing here and now, a religion that is earth-centric and deeply ecological focused on this world and not otherworldly, a religion that is more in harmony with naturalism and sees the sacred and the divine in this world and not in the world to come. I will be inviting you to contribute to this conversation in the afternoon session and I emailed out a handout yesterday to stimulate your thoughts on this topic. Okay, so let's get into part one, Beyond Secularism. So coming out as a religious organization, it has taken many years of practice and reflection to finally come out of the closet and declare that I embrace my Zen practice as the expression of living a religious life. In fact, it was not too long ago that I was still describing myself as a secular Buddhist in the Stephen Batchelor sense. Even though my teacher, Barry Majid, has always declared Sazen to be a religious practice. One of the reasons why I was somewhat hesitant to embrace Zen as a religious practice was my awareness of a strong secular culture in Australia and that many people prefer to identify as spiritual rather than religious. I personally think this is more of a distrust of religious organizations and, and priests um, than an embrace of atheism as such. I've come to feel that over the years that humanity may has a need for religion in the same way we need connection. In fact, the facilitation of social bonding is one explanation for the origins of religion in the pre-Upper Paleolithic period. And there is plenty of evidence to suggest that religious commitment, beliefs, practices, and rituals help protect and manage our emotional life with unparalleled and probably irreplaceable success. Religion is in effect, and I'm quoting this, a management system for our emotional lives that helps the human organism stay healthy and well. And that's for a quote from a review of a book that was published in 2019 called Why We Need Religion by an Oxford-based philosophy professor, Stephen Asma. So what do we mean by religious? Um, so, just a, this is just a few sketches. First of all, on the evolution of religion, what um, some philosophers call the death of God in the 19th century and the, the rise of secularism. So first of all, um, this is a quote from the same book, Why We Need Religion. It is a truth, though sadly not one universally acknowledged, that what you think of religion largely depends on what you think is religion. So I'll just repeat that. What you think of as religion largely, oh, sorry, what you think of religion 
largely depends on what you think religion is. And so what we're wanting, what I'm wanting to do in this project is to re-envision what religion might mean to us. What is religion to us from a Zen perspective? And, uh, and I think when we do that, your view of religion and religious life may shift a little bit if you're sitting somewhat on the fence or, in, or if indeed you're very anti-religious. One of the best definitions I've come across, I'll just, I'll just quote this, this definition of religion. It's from a book by a guy called Jonathan Smith. The book is called Map is Not Territory, and it was published back in 1978. Religion is the quest within the bounds of the human historical condition for the power to manipulate and negotiate one's situation so as to have space in which to meaningfully dwell. It is the power to relate one's domain to the plurality of environment and social spheres in such a way as to guarantee the conviction that one's existence matters. Religion, Could you repeat that, Andrew? Sorry, I um, kind of caught the words, but didn't really. Okay, uh, from the beginning. Just that quote, yeah. So, religion is the quest within the bounds of the human historical condition for the power to manipulate and negotiate one's situation so as to have space in which to meaningfully dwell. It is the power to relate one's domain to the plurality of environment and social spheres in such a way as to guarantee the conviction that one's existence matters. Religion is a distinctive mode of human creativity the creativity which both discovers limits and creates limits for human existence. What we study when we studied religion is the variety of attempts to map, construct and inhabit such positions of power through the use of myths, rituals and experiences of transformation. So it's a general, a general definition that tries to include the whole of all the different religions, which is quite difficult. Who is it, please, Andrew? Sorry. Uh, that was by a guy called Jonathan Smith. Um, map is not territory. What? Uh -huh. Thank you. Map is not territory. So just, 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 just a very, very brief sketch of the evolution of religions going back to what they call the uh, pre-Upper Paleolithic uh, stage and through to the Paleolithic stage, characterized by polytheism plurality of gods and um, very earth mother centric. This kind of practices on, and rituals were very much to do with social bonding, as well as through rituals, as well as shamanic healing and other various um, aesthetic practices maybe, um, through which um, the experience of the numinous and the wonder of of the world was was expressed in these very early religions. Um, creating uh, cultures that were quite um, in harmony with nature and and quite sustainable in their longevity and very, very equal in their relationship to other beings, other animals on the planet. Then, this is very brief, so please bear with me. Um, it's a huge, huge topic. Uh, with the development of agriculture and then urbanization, this all started to change and, uh, and religion became more father-centric and uh, you, gain, you, you, you have the appearance of monotheism, so one God, uh, and, uh, and what's known as the axial age. You had teachings like Buddhism, and other, you know, Greek teachers who were starting to actually question what it means to live from an individual point of view, because prior to that, the sense of individuality was very much, 
we were very much part of the uh, of the social group um, previously to this time. So what's sometimes known as the actual age, around about 500 BC, uh, people started to get a sense of an individual self, and they also started to engage in ethical discussions and religious discussions. And Buddhism is one example of that, where the question of the meaning of life, the meaning of existence, becomes something that's we can we can we can question on an individual level. Let me get the, the the movement through the medieval times, and I'm just going to bypass that. And um, but during the medieval age, there was a very strong hierarchy of being um, with God at the top and coming down through the angels and archangels and down to the through the uh, king and the divine power of the king, so on. And um, a lot of this kind of religion can be characterized as instrumentalism in the sense in which it's a means to an end. One, one, one engages in religious practices to either get a more favorable rebirth or to go to heaven or to, um, to do well in this life or to, um, to cure oneself of a sickness and so on. So there was a lot of what's called an instrumental relig religious view that you, you, you did religious practices in order to change. I mean, you still see this with um, um, in everyday life, even now with uh, people praying to God for a particular outcome or people thanking God for a particular outcome. That's a very instrumental way of relating to religious practice. This seemed to dovetail quite well into industrialization and capitalism and with Protestantism as well. And, uh, and this kind of hierarchy uh, in terms of the dominance, I guess, of Christianity within the industrial West, we had the, um, the, the, the relating to nature as an object or primarily as a resource. And so we had this with, with technology goes hand in hand, the metaphor of resource. And so the earth and not just the earth, but people become resources to be used and exploited. And this becomes the core of 19th century industrialization into the 20th century leading. And, uh, but also at the same time in the 19th century, we had um, a number of philosophers talking about the death of God with the rise of science and secularism and the kind of crisis this instituted, the kind of existential crisis a lot of people experienced. And, uh, and along with that, the, obviously, the development of secularism and science. So this, this creates, this is the kind of melting pot within which modern Buddhism comes into the West at the beginning of the 20th century. And modern Buddhism is very much shaped by trying to adapt to this particular Western culture. So I'm now going to focus now on Stephen Batchelor's work. Um, and so he develops this secular Buddhism. And, he, and um, Stephen Batchelor initially, well, as a very young man, um, became a Tibetan Buddhist and, and uh, lived in India for quite a few years, learned Tibetan and practiced re religiously as a Tibetan. He then also uh, spent about eight years in a Korean Zen monastery as well. So he had a lot of um, many years as a, a religious Buddhist. And then in about the 1980s, he started publishing books, which eventually led to his secular Buddhism. So Stephen Batchelor is probably the most articulate and comprehensive body of work setting out the contours of what he calls secular Buddhism. His work, especially his book after Buddhism, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age, sets out his argument that he's actually returning to a more authentic Buddhism, back to the origins of Buddhism in the Pali scriptures. And although there are many points of agreement with Batchelor, for example, I don't think a belief in rebirth is essential to identifying as a Buddhist. Um, I think his portrayal of religion is oversimplified and um, making it easier to cut off Buddhism from its religious roots and origins. So my thoughts about this were quite influenced by um, a chapter 
called Secular Buddhism and Religious Dimensions of Enlightenment by a Buddhist scholar called Dale Wright from his book, um, 2016 book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? And there's a chapter on secular Buddhism in this book, which I found quite interesting. So like Batchelor tends to lump all religions together and, and describes them as being otherworldly, seeking escape in some form of transcendence from the troubles of this world. Batchelor includes within otherworldly not only beliefs in the, say, for example, heavenly afterlife, but other more abstract ideas of transcendence found in Buddhism and other teachings such as the transcendence of impermanence through the, the reification of some special transcendent state. Um, so while it is true in what I have previously called salvation Buddhism, this tendency can be found in Buddhism as in a rejection of this world. This is definitely not the case in Zen Buddhism and especially not the case in the ordinary mind Zen school. I would think also theologians from other traditions would also be critical of this characterization of religion as an oversimplification. In my view, not all religions are otherworldly. Some religions like Zen seek to cure us of, of, of escapism by teaching how to come face to face with reality. And what's more, quoting Wright, religious non-dualism, on the other hand, claims that what is transcendent or profound is not another reality far out beyond this one, but rather the depth dimension of this one world in which we live, a dimension that can be encountered through spiritual practice that pushes us beyond ordinary human concerns like food and shelter. Finally, Bachelor tries to have his cake and eat it too. He often refers to the sacred dimensions of human experience and the possibility of mystical experiences. He says this is to be found in this world. Similarly, he writes, my secular Buddhism has a religious quality because it is rooted in ultimate concerns. But as I have said above, these two tendencies can both be found in religious Buddhism itself. So it is not clear why the focus on this world now needs to be called secular. I'll leave it at that with, uh, with, uh, with, with Stephen Batchelor's work. I now want to go on to the, the second part of what I wanted to talk about, which is Majid's critique of secular mindfulness. And there's three concepts they employ in that chapter. And I'll, I'll explain them to you. The first one's deracination, secularization, and instrumentalization. So let me just, um, the chapter is called The Three Shaky Pillars of Western Buddhism, deracination, secularization, and instrumentalism. So what they mean by, basically by deracination is uprooted from its traditional religious culture. So it just means decontextualized, uprooted from its culture. So if you go along to say um, mindfulness being taught in the high school, it's really important because schools are secular that what's being taught is not seen as being Buddhist. Um, and uh, so there's this real pairing away of anything religious in the secular mindfulness movement. All the rituals and practices that we would normally associate with Buddhism are taken away to a great degree. The second one is um, what they refer to as um, secularization and instrumentalization. So we all understand what secularization means. It's, it's the same thing that we're taking away the religious trappings of anything and uh, making it a secular practice that can be re researched scientifically. So you can get, you know, for example, you'll do, you know, fine research on how meditation uh, affects, new, you know, the brain, how meditation um, practice of mindfulness can be beneficial for depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. 
one of the ways in which Majid distinguishes Zen as a religious practice from secular mindfulness is what he calls no gain, the practice of no gain. The practice of no gain goes right back to the, um, the beginnings of Soto Zen Buddhism in the work of the Japanese teacher Dogen. And um, Dogen is very famous for saying practice and realization are one. Um, in other words, meditation is not a technique um, that we practice in order to achieve some outcome like enlightenment. It is not a, it's, it's not a, so practice is gain as in mindfulness practice is often seen as a technique as a means to an end. In other words, it's going to reduce your levels of anxiety or it's going to relieve your depression. As I'm talking about this, this is not to say that secular mindfulness is bad or one should not engage in secular mindfulness. I'm just making the distinction between religion and secular mindfulness on the basis of no gain. Um, so a technique as a means to an end is something that you can do, what Barry says, something you can do good or badly. But the, the real important thing to get is that religious practice is not the same as spending five days a week practicing your golf swing. It's not the same even as practicing the piano. And this is probably maybe because the word practice has different meanings in different contexts. We often think of practice as improving our skills. Um, but practice in the Zen sense is not a not a technique that we can that we can improve. Um, it's more best described really as a ritual. It's a ritual enactment. So zazen as a re re religious enactment of the original Buddha sitting under the tree many years ago. Um, and as soon as we sit in zazen and practice, realization is there. It's not practicing to get realization. Practice is realization. The world, as we practice, discloses itself differently, not because we're developing a skill as such, but just because we're actually just being the Zazen. So practice is a regular, is regular and ongoing, non-conceptual expression of the true self. Dogen Zen practice is identical with realization. We teach practice as no gain. The practice of awareness, just sitting is the core of Soto Zen practice. So to quote Dogen, this Zazen of which I speak is not a technique of meditation, but the Dharma gate of joy and ease. And to quote Majid and Parier, Zazen is in and of itself the alternative to our usual state of grasping, clinging and goal oriented life in general. So there's something about practicing Zazen, which shifts us to a whole different page to our usual mainstream dominant culture of instrumentalization of means to an end of continuous self improvement whether that's something that we do in organizations to improve our efficiency, whether that's something we do to, in terms of our own personal life to create a more, um, a better self in some way. Um, Zazen is totally off that page. And that is where Barry tends to really uh, use as the, the main distinction or the main way of understanding how this is a religious practice. That 
Also takes into account, though, that Zazen is still a kind of ritual that we are enacting, as well as all the other rituals we enact as part of our Zen practice. There's something about the whole cliche about practicing it religiously, which is really important in, in this sense, the way Barry often talks about making your bed in the morning. You become a person who makes the bed in the morning by disciplining in yourself in that way. And eventually you just become a person who makes your bed in the morning. As we practice our Zazen on a day by day basis, and then we bring that Zazen into our everyday life, our everyday life, it becomes an expression of that Zazen throughout the totality of the 24 hours. It's not Zazen is not something we do on a Sunday. It becomes who we are, it becomes, it becomes the way we be, the way in which we be in the world and the way, and that influences the way the world shows up to us. So Joko talks a lot about experiencing, you know, verbs are really good. It stops us from reifying something, but it, it's the same, you could, you could speak of awareness as well, but experiencing is something that is what Zazen is. So experiencing is all there is you can't doubt that you're experiencing right now and this experiencing is always um, prior to the social construction of the dualistic world it's prior to conceptualization duality me and you is a secondary construction um so Sometimes the metaphor of a mirror is used, but I don't think that's a really good metaphor because we're not actually um, the experiencing is not a reflection of what is out there. When we construct a, a me and you, that's a that's a that's that's a that comes later. Experiencing is inherently non-dual. It's just hearing, seeing, feeling, immediacy. And um, the rest in terms of me and you is a projection into the world. It has no substantial reality in that sense. Experiencing is the knower of the known. In that sense, experiencing is timeless and has no boundaries. You can't step back and observe experiencing because you are the experiencing. It can't be said to come and go. So in a sense, experiencing is our original face before any thoughts of good and evil. Zazen is simply just experiencing. In the same way you can't practice Zazen so that you can get good at it, you can't practice experiencing to be good or bad at it. Experiencing is just experiencing. You can't make it better or good or worse. Experiencing is just experiencing. That's why it's no gain. And it's religiously done for the sake of doing it, that sense of the religious reenactment of the ritual. And in the same sense, faith is something which arises in Buddhism as well, but faith is grounded in practice and practice is grounded in faith. And maybe there are some similarities in other religious traditions too. Practice is really the key element here. And it's the, Faith in Zazen is expressed in practicing Zazen, which is also realizing the way at the same time. So when we forget the self in Zazen, when we forget our individual egoistic self, the faith is confirmed immediately by what in Buddhism we call it the 10,000 things, which is just experiencing. So faith is taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha in that sense. And that faith is confirmed when those practices and change our disposition towards the world and help us to cope with the world as it is. So in a way, we do end up, in a sense, talking about the benefits of practice, but not as a something, not as a instrumental thing, but the way in which our way of being in the world is shaped by our Zen practice. And the way in which we experience the world is shaped by our Zen practice. So I'm just going to finish with um, some challenges that I've listed. 
um, for the 21st century. There are many more, and I'm sure you could add lots to them. But basically, some of the challenges I think we're dealing with are alienation and social isolation, loss of meaning, fundamentalism, greed and inequality, poverty, climate change, and pandemics. Just a few to get on with. So we have to cope living in that kind of world. And we have to bring some hope to that world, as in the, the work of people like Joanne Macy and Diane Rosetta. And um, we need to, I believe, revision Zen as a religious life uh, for the 21st century. And we'll talk, we'll have an open discussion about what that might look like, what that consists of in the afternoon. So I'll finish there. And um, we've got about 15 minutes for questions or comments. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Michael, and, and then... Um, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So much, Andrew. That was... Uh, it's, um, that was really wonderful, Andrew. Uh, a great synthesis, a great um, vision that you're channeling, uh, creating. Um, it's just quite, quite uh, serendipitous. Um, I've been reading a book by Joe March called uh, The Human Cosmos, A History of the Stars. And, and it covers um, similar ground in some ways that I've been chewing on uh, very very interesting very fruitful um but just just really one thing i when it came to mind um about the the latin meaning of um the word religion just just a little little uh, snippet to share um religion uh in latin is re ligare which uh, means to reconnect as a bit of a literal translation. So I just thought that that was a wonderful um, thing to, to link up with what various religions have been trying, you know, to reconnect with something more than a shitty life that has uh, probably been led by so many parts of humanity along the journey. Um, and, yeah, I, I personally took a lot of heart from what you were saying to find a, a new way to do religare, um, not, not in old kind of um, curative fantasy ways of, you know, the real being out there in the stars or you know, wherever else or, or even in, in uh, you know, the salvation through secularism, like it perhaps uh, followed a path through science, like you were saying, and the Enlightenment. Uh, and look at the mess that it's got us into because <laughs> there's so much separation. We've un unligarated from connection with this world, like, um, like you're saying, we're in, we're in deep shit. Um, so I, I, I just, um, I felt a sense of hope with the sort of um, path or way of going forward with a practice uh, to really, yeah, uh, to not run away. It tied in very much with the sort of um, essence of what, what Barry's uh, Taisho was about maybe might share that at some point later, but that there is no there is no safe bubble fantasy to escape to except to be here. And I really felt that truth in what you were saying as 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 the way forward. So just wanted to say thanks very much. Thanks, Michael, and look forward to um, teasing it up more this afternoon if you can hang around. Hmm. Um, David. 
I'll try and stay awake. <laughs> um, I was pretty much probably just going to say what Michael said in, in uh, maybe less words and less eloquently, but um, yeah, I was just like, wow, that was um, the clearest uh, sort of talk and um, presentation of information that I could actually make sense of and make use of at a deep level that I feel like I've heard from uh, since being in this uh, group with you and probably in my whole life. And I just, I just the thought that went through my head as you finished was why, why didn't someone say, say something like this as clearly to me like before, but uh, great gratitude just to, just to hear a sense of what religion uh, might be for me and as a way of connecting with other people versus some kind of disavowal that I've gone through or some sense of lingering yearning for something from it that I then become afraid of and have to sort of distance myself from or fantasise about how I could pick a little bit out of bits of it. So, um, yeah, just, I guess, similar uh, sort of overall experience of gratitude. Thank you. Thank you, David. Richard and then Jack. Uh, yeah, just like to to uh, add, endorse what David and Michael said. I mean, I can't believe the amount of work and thought that uh, goes, you know, putting that together, Andrew. Incredible, just uh, really mind-boggling. So thank you. Um, I was just reflecting on the the idea of experience uh, being a experiencing being a religious um, way of life and. Um, you know, the great uh, Lee Scratch Perry, uh, if anyone's familiar, left the building this week or in the last couple of weeks. So there's been a lot of shows on radio about his life and his legacy, you know, one of the great producers and changed the, the shape of, uh, you know, music, reggae and other forms, you know, uh, dub, invented dub, some say invented hip hop and so on. But one of the things, very um, eccentric fellow, one of the things that listening to about his life he came from a very poor background in Jamaica, uh, experienced uh, hunger. He's had a quite a brutal father, and his early life he was working on the chain on the the road gangs breaking rocks, and he had this experience where he he could hear the sound of the breaking rocks became the the sort of starting point of his musical career because he could feel the energy as the rocks were breaking and the sound reminded him of thunder and he could start to feel this rhythm in the breaking of the rocks. And then that opened up his consciousness to sounds in nature of birds and wind. And uh, that was how he started to, he started to develop um, melodies and sounds in his head. And then that took him eventually to start being one of the greatest produced music, you know, sound producers and, experimenters of all time. Um, so I just thought that's an, maybe one example of probably the thousands of examples where somebody is having a, a really mundane experience um, that is actually incredibly religious, uh, transcendental experience. So, yeah, just wanted to throw that one in. Thank you for sharing that with us, Richard. That's great. And um, sorry you can't be with us this afternoon, but thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Jack. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. Um, and um, I, I really like, um, I, I'm not someone who's allergic to, um, you know, the word religion. Um, and I really like how you said, um, you know, we, we use the word religion because, you know, it expresses that our life matters. Um, and I think that that's, that's lovely, <laughs> that all of our lives matter. And 
it's sort of religion because you know we do it together and it's deeply important to us you know um and uh, you know our life matters and the lives of other of, of each other mat matters and the lives of animals matter and the planet matters um and that we we do value things um and i don't like you know there's the buddha gets quoted be a lamp unto yourself or something and it just seems cold. Um, so for me, religion brings a real um, sense of warmth and um, commitment to what matters. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, another translation of the lamp quote is like, you are the light. You could say you are the light that connects. Nita. I really liked how um, you sort of draw the, you drew the link between emotional management and religion. So it's that sense of you need the connection to be able to regulate your emotions because you can't do it alone. I find that really profound because uh, that's my experience with Buddhism in particular. Thank you, Nita. Yeah. Anybody else? David? Just following that up, it just occurred to me, it's like, as a way of, as a way of the benefit of uh, regulating emotions, plus for me, a sense of being able to relate <laughs> to the outside world or just relate to others is probably connected for me with my personal emotional regulation is a, a perspective I get from, from meditating and, and just experiencing things sort of randomly that, that gives me access to that. Thanks, Nita. Yeah. 